Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes depictions of postpartum depression and harm against minors, as well as discussions of suicide. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Mary and Nellie didn't have a home anymore. The earthquake had taken it away, leaving a mess of broken bricks and tangled plumbing. Now they lived in a refugee camp north of Golden Gate Park. The world was no bigger than the shack they'd been given, a 10 by 14 foot featureless rectangle, nothing like their once beautiful brownstone. They were 12 years old, and their mothers didn't want them hanging around all day. They didn't want to be around either, so the girls walked a half hour south and into the park, hoping to watch the boats on Stowe Lake. It had been three months since the earthquake literally shook their lives to pieces. Even the lake hadn't escaped the tremors. The wreckage of the observatory that stood on the island at its center still lay on the shore. Mary and Nellie sat down in the grass to watch rich people stroll or clop by in their beautiful carriages. Nellie always had a flair for the dramatic. So when she said she saw a corpse in the water, Mary tried to ignore her at first. But then she saw it too. Tiny, naked, floating, pale and bloated, like the jellyfish they'd seen washed up on the coast. They ran to the edge of the lake to get a better view, and the small shape obliged by drifting towards them. A low moan echoed in Mary's ears. She didn't know the source, but she was sure, somehow, that something was watching them, testing them. She couldn't look away, no matter how horrible she knew the dead infant would be. She braced her nose for an unnerving odor, but no scent came. The shape reached the edge of the water, and before the two girls' eyes, disappeared. Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places for free on Spotify. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Stowe Lake, a picturesque body of water in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. Coming up, we begin our supernatural jaunt with a runaway pram and a tragic drowning. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details.
On July 10, 1906, the San Francisco Call reported that two earthquake refugees, Mary Cook and Nellie Gilligan, saw the naked body of a baby floating in a small pond but connected to Stowe Lake. The police attempted to dredge the pond but found nothing. It is strange to imagine something so horrible occurring in such a picturesque green space. Stowe Lake is Golden Gate Park's most stunning water feature. The lake is man-made, a 12-acre source of irrigation for the surrounding park. The small island known as Strawberry Hill stands at the center, complete with a man-made waterfall. Birds and turtles are abundant, and the plants at the lake's edge are sometimes so thick they form a kind of hedge between the water and the adjacent footpaths. It's a picturesque location and a frequent tourist destination, often filled with row and pedal boats. It's also the site of several horrible tragedies, from multiple suicides to the accidental death of a child. Mary and Nellie's vision of that child is a disturbing story, but nothing is darker than the legend that surrounds the lake, a pitiful tale of a freak accident and rescue attempt gone terribly wrong. Amelia's doctors had told her to get plenty of fresh air throughout her pregnancy. Fresh air apparently solved everything from nausea to anxiety. But it wasn't as easy as the man of the white coat suggested. Days spent outdoors didn't actually make her feel better. They didn't make her feel anything at all. She had wanted Owen desperately. All of her friends already had children. It had been her own stubborn body that was holding out. She couldn't believe it when she found out that she was carrying a child. Years of hoping and praying had resulted in a miracle. But the pains were worse than she'd expected. Her back was so sore that it felt like the ridges of her spine were ready to burst out through her skin. Her feet were swollen, making it difficult to walk. A heavy unease settled under her skin, and it didn't leave, even when she held her son in her arms. No matter how hard she tried, she just couldn't express her emotions anymore. Everything felt far away, like she was on the wrong side of a mirror. Even if she banged on the glass until her hands bled, no one was going to reach through to save her. Her husband, Everett, told her that she would be fine once the child was born. Owen was what they'd been waiting for. Their family would be complete. But, complete or not, she still didn't feel like herself. Owen wanted so many things, and he wanted none of them from her. He never slept. He wouldn't eat. She was never good enough for her son. Despite his resistance, she kept trying. She pushed through her own numbness to act like the mother he deserved. So, when it was apparently time to get more fresh air, she went to Stowe Park to do just that. Owen was in a rare good mood, smiling up at her from his stroller. His clear blue eyes and rosy cheeks made him look positively cherubic. For a moment, she felt the unfamiliar feeling of happiness rise within her. This was the joy she'd been missing for months. Perhaps her doctor had been onto something. They strolled along the trail, fighting the wind that carried the powdery smell of dahlias in bloom. Owen continued to giggle and smile. Amelia felt her energy start to dwindle after the fourth lap. 
She set Owen's stroller up next to a wooden bench facing the lake and sat down beside him. She was joined a moment later by Hattie, one of her dearest friends, who happened to be out for a walk as well. The time rolled by as the two of them caught up on the latest gossip. Someone's marriage was always falling apart or being awkwardly taped back together. Children were almost always acting up. Amelia could now contribute to that conversation, explaining her difficulties to her friend. Hattie had several suggestions. Owen started to cry, and Amelia could feel her joy slipping away, like a kite that had lost its train. Hattie picked Owen up and cooed at him. The boy calmed down immediately. Amelia was jealous. She never had that effect on her son. She didn't know what she was doing wrong. Hattie put Owen down. She hugged Amelia tightly and told her that it just took time. There was nothing wrong with her, she promised. Amelia was still struggling to decide if she believed her. When someone gasped beside them, she didn't pay it any mind. A loud splash came from the lake. Not looking away, Hattie cracked a joke about kids roughhousing so close to society ladies' dresses. It was a terribly expensive inconvenience. Amelia laughed. She felt free. Owen had been quiet for longer than usual. Amelia was grateful for the break, but it was strange. She turned to check on him. The stroller was gone. Amelia looked to the left of the bench. She looked to the right. There was no sign of it. Strollers didn't just disappear. They would have heard a stranger approach, wouldn't they? He was so little, so helpless. There wasn't a thing Owen could do on his own besides breathe and cry. He needed her. She circled the bench. There were no obvious clues. On her fourth frantic turn, she noticed the slightest impression of wheels in the grass. They only went maybe a foot before disappearing altogether. Several feet ahead of that was the water. Hattie said that children were always roughhousing next to the lake. What if some cruel child had pushed the stroller in? Amelia didn't stop to think. Instead, she lifted the bottom of her skirts and started to wade into the water. Tiny bubbles floated up toward the surface, about ten feet in front of her. Owen. It had to be. Amelia's dress was growing heavy. She tried her best to run through the water. It threatened to pull her beneath the surface. But the soft silt beneath her feet was enough to keep her head above water, for a moment at least. Then, the bottom fell out beneath her. The bubbles were still several feet away. As she sank, she looked for her son's pale pink cheeks. But all she saw was the green haze of the lake. A beam of sunlight made its way to the lake bed, revealing a familiar silhouette. The stroller lay at the bottom. Amelia did her best to swim toward it, kicking her legs out from under her skirts to keep them from tangling. The fabric twisted around her ankles. She tried to free herself, but she didn't have the strength. Amelia screamed Owen's name, taking in water by the mouthful. It didn't matter now. He would hear her. A baby always knew their mother's voice. Owen would find her. No that wasn't right. Her thoughts were growing as murky as the water. Her lungs burned. Her legs could barely move within the knots of heavy fabric clinging to them. 
she tried to swim upwards. A little more fresh air would do her good. The doctor was always right. Her skirts clung to her like molten lead, dragging her down to the bottom to sit next to the stroller. The stroller. Before she'd lost herself in the fabric, she'd been swimming toward it. She was so close, just a little further. The sky was darkening above her. Night couldn't have fallen so soon. Her fingers touched the metal handle of the stroller. Amelia never learned whether her child was inside. For the next instant, her limbs ceased to move and her heart ceased to beat. She was as lost to the world as her son. The White Lady of Stowe Lake is arguably one of San Francisco's most famous ghosts. It is said she appears at night, sometimes asking passers-by if they've seen her baby. Other times, she only stands, glowing, floating in the air the way she would in water, arms outstretched, reaching for the child she can never save. The tale of the White Lady and her child's death is a famous local legend but the 1906 San Francisco earthquake wiped out most of the city's public and private records, so there's no way to corroborate the rumor. Whole generations of crime reports are gone, and even if the White Lady's tragedy appeared in them, the circumstances of her death will never surface again. Up next, the White Lady crashes a party. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. The death of the White Lady is by no means the only tragedy to occur around Stowe Lake. On February 25, 1900, the San Francisco Call ran a splash page Sunday feature called The Park Suicides. Between 1890 and 1900, one in every 12 suicides in San Francisco occurred within Golden Gate Park. There are many reasons the park seems to attract those suffering from the impulse to self-harm. Its size alone is immense for an intercity green space, taking up over 1,017 acres, 20% larger than New York Central Park. There are plenty of shadows and secluded spots, which offer the privacy sufferers of suicidal ideation tend to seek. Beyond the general atmosphere of the park, the area surrounding Stowe Lake can be particularly unnerving at night. Locals report feelings of paranoia, dread, and sadness. Strange moans are said to float over the water, and sometimes the lady herself makes an appearance, highlighting the tragedy that covers the lake, like early morning mist. Arthur had been working hard for the last five years at his father's company, he could finally afford the car of his dreams. The 1903 Shelby runabout was five years old, but far superior to anything on the current market. 
with her cushy front and plush back seats, she was sure to catch the eye of passing strangers. Now that he had the luxury of an automobile, he'd never be stuck in a horse and buggy again. His cousin, Irene, shared his love for the Shelby. She'd complimented it at dinner and told him of a friend she knew that would love to take a ride in such a newfangled vehicle. The friend in question, Mabel, was almost as pretty as the new automobile. She had long, dark hair, piled high in her head, and wore dresses that would give society matrons heart palpitations. Her mouth was frozen in a permanent smirk, and her eyes practically glittering in the candlelight. He'd been happy to take Mabel wherever she wanted to go. Well, that was until Irene popped down the stairs behind him with two other girls, Ethel and Florence. They were all ready to go to a party across town and thanked him for being kind enough to drop them off. Arthur pulled his cousin aside, practically growling. That wasn't what he'd signed up for. Irene rolled her eyes and told him to relax. They would let him come to the party, where he could find his own way of getting close to Mabel. Arthur sighed. He didn't want to escort anyone who wasn't Mabel anywhere, but his chances with her would be gone if he refused to play along. So he agreed. But he made it clear that Mabel would be the one sitting alongside him. The three others would have to squeeze in the back. Squeals of delight echoed down the hallway. Arthur fought to suppress his own annoyance. Mabel rested her hand softly against his jacket and he felt some of his frustration start to ebb away. He could be charming and chivalrous for her. He lifted her into the seat, watching her throw her head back and laugh. Her excitement was infectious. He could feel the corners of his mouth curl upward as he got her settled, and then climbed up to take the driver's seat. Irene had never driven anything in her life, but she saw it fit to give him directions at every turn. As Arthur navigated the dim San Francisco streets, she offered a comment for every choice he made. Tired of his cousin and wanting Mabel to scoot a little closer to him, Arthur made the executive decision to take a shortcut Irene didn't know about. The road through Golden Gate Park saw a lot of use, but not by people of their station. Fancy roadsters didn't use this route. It was reserved for people who had to pay for their rides. He could feel Irene tense in the back seat. Good. She should squirm a little. She told him not to go through this way. He told her to relax. Mabel clutched his arm a little tighter and asked why Irene was scared. Arthur took his eyes off the road to meet hers for a moment. The answer to her question was simple, but he let the silence hang between them. He slid his gaze back to the road before whispering to her that the call had run a feature in their Sunday edition about how people thought the park was the perfect spot to die. It was easy to see how it made a reputation for itself. There was very little light as the old trees curved over the road in grass, blocking out the sky. You could be left alone for hours and no one would find you. Greenery would hide you in plain sight. How many people had come to this park for an illicit affair and been only two or three feet away from a dead body without knowing it? Mabel's fingernails dug into Arthur's skin. She whispered that they should turn around. Arthur told her not to worry. He could protect her from anything. Besides, the people that came here to die weren't trying to harm others. 
He shot a look over at her. The fear was still clearly in her eyes. He promised her that she would be safe. A scream came from the back seat. Arthur turned to tell Irene to stuff it. There was nothing to be afraid of. Then the car hit something. Arthur swung his head back to the road and pulled on the brake as hard as he could. The Shelby sputtered, fighting momentum before finally slowing to a stop. Irene screamed that Arthur had killed someone. The girls in the back peppered in their agreement like a strangely chaotic Greek chorus. Arthur ran his hand through his hair. He couldn't have killed anyone. There wasn't anyone around. Mabel looked unsure. He didn't want to lose his chance with her, so he stepped down onto the ground. Soft mist hung in the air. The lush green vines and moss clinging to the skeletal trees seemed to swim in the moonlight. The wall of foliage hid the lake, but he could still hear the soft ripple of the water and the call of a water bird settling in on its nest. He couldn't see a soul around for miles. To prove his point further, he got down on his hands and knees and looked beneath the car. There was no splayed body or trail of blood. There was just the recently paved road and the Shelby. He stood back up and stretched his arms out wide in a flourish, but none of his companions were looking at him. They were all looking just behind his right shoulder. Arthur felt her before he saw her. A tattered piece of cloth grazed his arm, as soft as the breeze that floated over the lake. He turned to find a woman suspended in midair. Her hair wafted softly back and forth, as if she was floating in still water. Her eyes were red, with blinding blue irises. He could feel pain radiating from the glow of her pale skin. Her arms reached out toward him. Arthur dove backward, scrambling back up and into the car. His foot slipped, and he banged his head against the metal edge of the seat. He looked up to Mabel for help, but she was transfixed by the strange woman. Arthur climbed into the seat. In his softest voice, he asked the woman if she would be so kind as to move off of the road. Her mouth stayed closed, but he heard a scream in his ear. She wanted him to dive into the lake and find her child. Arthur shook his head slowly. He wasn't about to dive anywhere at this time of night. Her eyes hardened. The platform that he rested his feet against started to bend. Arthur apologized. It kept bending. So he apologized again. He was sorry for her loss and sorry for being mean to Irene and sorry for hating Irene's friends because he wanted to be alone with Mabel. The platform sank back into place. Arthur decided to press forward, whether she moved or not. The car revved. Both Mabel and the girls in the back screeched in fear. The Shelby jutted forward and should have slammed into the woman in white, but it passed right through her and she was gone. Arthur didn't hesitate. He sped away, grateful for once to hear his cousin's voice. Her simpering almost distracted him from his utter terror. But as they neared the glass building housing the Conservatory of Flowers, his heart nearly stopped. 
Lights danced in the darkness up ahead. He reversed, but he wasn't fast enough. The lights approached, along with the sound of hoofbeats and whistles. Mounted police. It was the mounted police. Irene started to tell him what to do, but he silenced her with a look. If it was between the ghost and the cops, he knew which one he'd choose. He turned off the engine and tried to figure out how to tell his story. A front page story in the San Francisco Chronicle on January 6, 1908, describes the experience of Arthur Pigeon, who was stopped for speeding in Golden Gate Park. As he told the police officers, it was a thin, tall figure. It seemed to shine. It had long, fair hair and was barefooted. I did not notice the face. I was too frightened. The report ends with the notice that Captain Gleason of the park station was informed of the affair and gave orders that any ghost answering to this description is to be arrested on sight. Coming up, we discover the other supernatural part of Stowe Lake, one that has nothing to do with the water. Now back to the story. The radical change San Francisco underwent during the 1906 earthquake cannot be underestimated. Massive fires ravaged the metropolis, and an observatory built on Strawberry Hill at the center of Stowe Lake collapsed, never to be rebuilt. The landscape changed again in 1940, when a statue called the Pioneer Mother was placed at Stowe Lake's entrance. It was commissioned to honor the pioneer women of the Old West, and depicts a woman with outstretched arms and a small boy and girl clinging to her skirts. The statue's downcast gaze is unnerving in its blankness, but the rumors surrounding the sculpture are even more frightening. Poppy had never bought drugs before. She borrowed them a lot, but this was her first big buy. She felt very adult. Her parents might not have thought her art degree was real, but they didn't know anything about art. She was going to commune with the universe while they watched reruns of the Big Bang Theory, and no one could stop her. Frank said they could meet by Stone Lake at midnight. The statue seemed like the best landmark. It was slightly better lit and also not patrolled. She asked if they could meet somewhere that wasn't rumored to be haunted, but Frank just looked at her. If she was scared, maybe she didn't want the drugs. Poppy protested, and they got back on the same page. Midnight, Stowe Lake, Pioneer Woman statue. Poppy fussed with her outfit, trying to find the perfect blend of ne'er-do-well chic before giving up and going with a massive hoodie and jeans. She took her bike over to the park, figuring if she needed to get out quickly and quietly, it would be the best option. She arrived at 11.30 because her mother had always taught her to be on time. She settled in to wait, sliding her headphones in and pressing play on her favorite audiobook. She knew it was a bit daring to turn on, tune in, and drop out before she even had the tablets, but she was already at Stowe Lake at night. Tonight, she was all about taking risks. She couldn't help but raise her eyes to the statue as the chapter title echoed in her ears. 
there was a strange kind of movement conveyed by the casting of the bronze, as if the woman had been frozen in time, fighting the wind that blew through the Old West. Her eyes looked down in a vacant stare. The posture was all wrong. Her arms were outstretched, supposedly in welcome, but it evoked something much darker and poppy. She felt like she was being beckoned. The statue wanted her to climb up the platform and into its arms. But the second it did, those arms would catch her and she would be dead to the world. Perhaps she'd freeze up on the podium and become part of the artwork, joining the little boy and little girl clinging to the creepy woman's skirts. Poppy shook it off, groaning at herself. She wasn't even high yet. The dulcet British tones and terrible attempts at American accents soothed her anxiety as she leaned against the statue. Then, something moved. At first she thought it was some kind of reptile, skittering down the well-worn surface behind her. But whatever it was, didn't move like a reptile. Not really. In fact, it wasn't visible at all. It was crawling beneath the still surface. She jumped backward. The statue was still again. Poppy squinted. A sudden burst of children's laughter pierced through the recording, nearly blowing out her ears. She panicked, yanking the headphones off. But when she picked them up again, all she heard was the soothing British voice. She looked around for the source of the sound, but found nothing. Finally, her eyes landed on the blank gaze of the pioneer mother. She regretted it instantly. The statue's features moved and shifted, the high cheekbones becoming jagged, the mouth stretching to reveal glistening white teeth. Poppy tried to step back, but the statue's long arms caught her by the collar. Poppy screamed, but there was no one around to hear. A metal hand closed over her windpipe, squeezing. Poppy's eyes bulged. She tried to breathe, but no air would come. The inhuman sculpture pulled her toward it. Her feet dangled as she kicked at empty air. It was too strong. She closed her eyes, preparing for the end. But the end didn't come. Poppy heard a faint voice calling her name. She felt the rigid grip release her, and then she was falling. She hit the ground, finally out of the not-so-still monster's grasp. Her chest seized in pain, depriving her of precious oxygen as black dots danced in her eyes. She told herself that it hurt, but she could take it. The still of the night had run away with her, that was all. She slowed her breathing with long and longer counts of two, then four then six. Then she tentatively opened up one eye. Frank was standing over her, looking puzzled. Poppy got up quickly, brushing herself off as if she'd never fallen over at all. She asked if Frank had the drugs. They did. She handed the cash over and took the pencil case, red in the face from both pride and panic. Poppy expected to have to come up with some story to explain why she was white as a sheet, but Frank just trundled off into the darkness. Poppy stood opposite the statue for a moment, daring it to move. But the pioneer mother's blank eyes just stared in their usual downcast direction. 
Only the frozen little boy at her feet looked at her with his soft, curious gaze. Profoundly annoyed, Poppy opened up the small pencil case Frank had given her, prepared to celebrate her spoils, even if she was too shaken to take them. But the case didn't hold ecstasy or LSD or oxy or even Adderall. It was allergy medication. Frank had sold her allergy medication. She was so angry, so utterly livid that she didn't hear the scraping start again. Didn't feel the rush of air as the massive metal hand bore down on her. Poppy crumpled to the ground like a rag doll. Blood dripped out of her ears and across the grass. The statue's arm slid back into place as the children watched impassively. The Pioneer Mother statue underwent a full restoration in 1999. Weather damage had left discoloration on the surface, including strange white splotches and scarring on the statue's face. Though the damage has been removed, rumors of paranormal activity surrounding the statue persist, including stories of strange motion and a changing facial expression. Some report seeing a phantom third child near the other two, and childlike laughter apparently echoes around the path where the statue sits. The statue certainly isn't meant to depict the White Lady, but their shared attempts to reach out for passers-by may suggest a potential connection, even if no living person will ever know what either statue or ghost are reaching for. Stowe Lake was and remains a tourist destination. There's a charming cafe, a Chinese pavilion, and a large boathouse for rentals. It should be a natural oasis in an expensive and cosmopolitan city. But there's no doubt that many San Franciscans find Stowe Lake unnerving at night. From its status as a common site for suicides to the reported apparition of a woman in white, it's a breeding ground for fearful rumors. Urban legends spring up like flowers in Golden Gate Park, including the belief that if you drive near Stone Lake with a caravan of cars at night, they'll all stall out at once. But that's not the worst of it. See, the most frightening legend demands that you go to the lake alone. The story goes that if you stand by the shore and say, White lady, white lady, I have your baby, three times, she will appear. She will ask you if you've seen her child, but you must be careful how you answer. If you say yes, she'll haunt you forever. But if you say no, she'll kill you. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legends series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Haunted Places in the search bar. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. 
Sound design by Kenny Hobbs. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Rache. With writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>